AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, no pill's gonna cure my ill, I got a bad case of loving you. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkobaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Jonathan, you're back. I am back, but yes. you, uh, you might notice uh, this is a really appropriate thing for us to cover today because my voice is dying. I've had... Oh, no. I, I've been oh, fighting did... off a little bit of a cold for ever since I got back. Did you get, get cruise crud? I, either cruise crud or uh, the European boogie flu. I don't know. I mean, it was... Uh, I had a great time. Uh-huh. I, I sailed around the British Isles. We told the listeners many 
untrue stories about, about what you were about doing. About I might uh-huh. or might not be dead. Yeah, I got a lot of concerned tweets that it was dead. Really I don't think we said dead. That was, was no, weird. It was I odd. I almost definitely didn't tell anyone you were dead. <laughs> That's good. Uh, I so think we may have mentioned Quidditch and, Quid- and they, yeah. made dismissive comments about France. I was, in fact... At a castle where they did shoot uh, some of the Quidditch scenes Ooh, from Harry oh, Potter. Man. Uh-huh. Uh, Onwick wow. Castle, historic home of the Percys. I was there for Hotspur. My wife was there for Harry Potter. <laughs> anyway, none of that has anything to do with what our topic is today. But uh, the fact that I was talking about feeling a bit under the weather mm-hmm. uh, does kind of, because we're talking about biosimilars, uh, a type of drug. And you may have heard this term, and you, some of you may even be very familiar with it, but uh, I... To, to just be you know honest, I had heard the term but didn't really understand it until we started doing research for this episode. Uh, oh, I think I think I knew nothing about it. Uh, yeah, I, I think that I I completely misunderstood it. We were talking right before we we started up about how uh, it, it was sort of a difficult topic to to wrap our heads around, partially because some of the reporting about it is a, a little bit confused itself. Yeah, uh, it, and- if not misleading, at least not clear. Right. Yeah. Or just not going into depth. I, I think I didn't really understand before the difference between biosimilar drugs and generic drugs. Yes. Uh, right. And, and, and biosimilar drugs have been in the, in the press a little bit lately because of some stuff, uh, floating around the FDA, uh, hopefully not literally, right. uh, <laughs> that, uh, that, that has to do with, with the way that these drugs are, are going to be regulated in maybe the near future, uh, maybe a little while from now. Right. But, uh, but, but yeah, so, so there is a distinct difference between biosimilar drugs and generic drugs and let's let, let's figure that out let's lay down these these ground definitions right so first let's just start with just the basic idea of what is a drug yeah uh, let's manufacture okay. some drugs okay <laughs> <laughs> wow, this episode went downhill in a hurry. All right, so uh, the drug is at its most basic level some sort of molecule that has a pharmacological effect on something organic, and we are going to talk about drugs for humans because that's what we are. I mean, I don't want to speak for all of us. I'm not. Uh, a, I am definitely not. Almost ninety nine percent sure. I'm definitely not a reptilian. I'm so. not going to not say that I'm a reptilian. Okay. I'm mostly interested in drugs for wizards. Can we talk about those? We'll get back to Quidditch later. So <laughs> typically when we talk about drugs, we're talking about ones that were designed uh, through chemistry in a lab. That's the the majority of the drugs we use today are of that category. Not all of them are. Some of them are biologic as, as opposed to uh, uh, the the chemical approach, but we'll get into that. So when a pharmaceutical company develops a drug, it's really trying to build a molecule meant to have a particular effect on the person taking the drug, whether it's to fight a particular illness or uh, alleviate symptoms or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, make, it's meant to make some kind of chemical change in your body uh, in order to do a stuff. Right. Right. And typically the active ingredient is the drug itself, but an active ingredient is not the only ingredient in most drugs. You tend to have a lot of other stuff that is there. Maybe it's to uh, act as almost like a catalyst. Sometimes it's just a filler. It yeah, depends. Like a carrier system yeah. to get the stuff into your stuff. Sure. Yeah. So you we in the uh, getting over into the generic drug area, um, you would first call one of those drugs – uh, like the the main one that has already been developed by a company, it's been uh, uh, filed with intellectual property, so it has its own proper name that does not necessarily relate to any of the chemicals inside that drug. It's usually a pun of some kind. Yeah, yeah, you get so, or you'll just get like it'll sound vaguely scientific, but then you realize that that's just a brand name that someone came up with, yeah. and they said this is testing well. Yeah, 
Uh, well, th- maybe it would help to have an example to continue through this through well, this explanation. Aspirin. Let's do aspirin. Oh, I was going to make one up. Oh, okay. Go go ahead, make one up. Well, let's say you invent a small molecule drug that causes rapid balding for people who don't like to have haircuts. Okay, you know, they cool. just don't want to deal with it. And it they hate shaving. Advanced rapid balding. Sure. Man, and I, I feel like I'm being attacked in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? No. no I feel like I'm like, I've been advanced rapid balding for years. <laughs> uh, so this drug, the brand name version of it that is patented by the original drug innovator is called Scalpexra. Alright, Scalpexra. Scalpexra. So that's that's uh, the that's the, the brand the name. name. Yeah. The brand name. Yeah. yeah. So there's an active ingredient in Scalprexa. Uh what Scalpexra. is Scalpexra, sorry. Um, well, I don't need it, obviously. I've already, it's, it's worked on me. So Scalpexra is the, uh, the brand name. What is the active ingredient? Make something else up. Uh, it's, uh, sugar. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Well, it's a chemical. I don't, I, I, I know, I but you can just make up a name for a chemical too, for the purposes of this. It's called cubal hydride. All right. Cubal hydride <laughs> is the active ingredient in Scalpexra. Uh-huh. All right, cubal hydride. So, uh, so in, in the in the terms of generic drugs, you would have scalpexra, which is your reference drug. All right, mm-hmm. and then cubal hy. What was it? Cubal hydride. Cubal hydride is your is your actual active ingredient that becomes the generic term for that drug. Right. All right. So generics are uh, are drugs that have the same active ingredient as a brand name, mm-hmm. and they are meant to have the same pharmacological effect as the reference drug, that brand name drug, Scalpexra, in this, in, in this example that we have created. So if they're the same thing, in what sense is the generic different? Well, it has basically just to do with intellectual property law, right? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, so after the patent lifetime of the original patent on that drug expires for the drug innovator, then another company can come along and say, well, I want to make this same drug, but basically the only thing they can't do is call it by the same name. Right. So yeah. and and frequently the uh some of the non-active ingredients will be different, right. which yeah. which also partially explains why if you've ever noticed that sometimes generic drugs don't work exactly the way that uh that that a brand name drug does, it could be a placebo effect or it it, it could be a, a genuine chemical difference in the way that the drug is entering your system. Yeah. Right. There so, there can be cosmetic differences too. Like yeah. oh, sure, it can be shaped or colored differently. Well, it might be right. a like pill that. versus like the gel and capsule type stuff. It all depends, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the in the United States, the Food and Drug Administration has very specific rules for generic drugs and says that generic drug must be identical or within a range of bioequivalence to the reference drug. So it has to be that way. Mm-hmm. Now, biosimilar drugs are different from this. They are not uh, meant to be chemically identical to a reference drug. You still do have a reference drug. So they're intended to produce medicinal effects, uh, but they are one. They're not created through chemical synthesis, and their molecular structure is much larger and more complex than traditional brand name drugs or generics. Uh, so you first start off with a biologic therapy mm-hmm. of some sort. So this is in, this is similar in a way to the reference drug we talked about a second ago, the brand name drug. But in this case, it's biologically derived, um, and a biosimilar is meant to replicate the effects of the reference drug, the biologic therapy, but it doesn't have to at all molecularly resemble 
that reference drug. Uh, right, because, uh, okay, so biological therapies are products that are made from biological sources. They're extractions from cells or tissues or, or stuff that is made inside cells and tissues. Uh, they, they can also be called biopharmaceuticals or biologics, and they include things like, uh, like, like hormone therapies, mm-hmm. vaccines, blood components, gene therapies, antivenom or antitoxin, uh, insulin, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Right, and so... Keep in mind, we're, we're talking about both generics and biosimilars are supposed to achieve the same uh, results as their references. Mm-hmm. But in the case of generic drugs, when you break it down chemically, it is, for all intents and purposes, identical to the reference. Yeah, it yeah, does the a, same thing because it is the same thing. Right. <laughs> right. It's, it's a chemical structure. Um, and, and biologic therapies are, are more complicated because right. of A, the way that they're produced, and B, the stuff that they're made of. Right. So uh, if you want to have like an analogy that's not drug-related, you could say that uh, if you look at a, a catapult and a giant slingshot, they both can propel an object a very great distance they do it in slightly different ways but the end result is the same and they don't physically resemble one another right right so you could if you could design it in such a way they where have some of the same elements same, like, some of the same elements which is true with biosimilars as well exactly yeah. so that's why i wanted to say like again you got to think of biosimilars as being uh an attempt to create the same effect as some other reference mm-hmm. but it isn't identical to the reference. Not only that, but if you have two different companies trying to make biosimilar drugs, so you've got your reference biological therapy, right, that's created by somebody. You have two other companies that want to make a biosimilar uh, therapy using that first one as its reference. The two biosimilar therapies won't resemble one another either. They won't oh, resemble the, they won't physically. Not. No. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, because, because you have to reverse engineer because, uh, and we'll, we'll get into this in a minute, but, but the way that these things are patented, uh, people don't, uh, or, or companies rather don't have to write down everything about their process. They right. just, they just patent the end result. Right. And so, um, so, so when a, when another company comes along and tries to reverse engineer that process, then, uh, what they come up with might be wildly different. Yes. And so as we've already alluded to, making these things is complicated. I mean, you're you're talking about like almost like growing a drug as opposed to synthesizing one through chemistry. And because of this, the whole process requires a lot of precision and expertise. It is not an easy thing to do. It's not easy to produce it on a mass scale either. So for uh, that reason, a lot of biologic therapies tend to be incredibly expensive because it's not it's not easy to do. And it's not easy to do on a big scale. So in order to uh, balance that out, companies end up charging more for their various biologic therapies. It's not true in every single case, but in a lot of cases it is. So there was a there's hope that biosimilars can help bring that cost down. But we'll get into how that gets a little complicated and uh, just a little further. Um now it, the other issue we need to talk about is the idea of testing drugs. We've talked about drug testing and clinical trials in previous episodes. This is a pretty exhaustive process for good reason. You want to make certain that the drug that you are developing is efficacious and mm-hmm. it is not toxic. Without this process, we would be back in the era of patent medicine. Right. Yes. yes. And we'll talk about patent medicine pretty soon, too. Patent medicine and patented medicines 
yet more confusing terminology. <laughs> but uh, that is an excellent, excellent point. I mean, we would if you go if you think about it without that clinical testing, you're getting down to uh, the idea that uh, that a, a company could sell a drug claiming that it has an effect without having to prove it or even make certain that it isn't itself harmful to people. And we don't want that. That's why we have uh, organizations like in the U.S., the Food and Drug Administration, to make sure that companies are following very specific guidelines to not cause harm. So with generic drugs, the testing is a little more simple because you've already got a reference drug that is chemically identical to the generic drug, at least for the active ingredient. So it, you already know what it does to people. Right. Yeah. It's already it's already passed through clinical trials before it could ever go onto the market. Now that doesn't that doesn't mean generic drugs get a free pass and just immediately go straight to store shelves, but it does mean that a lot of that work has already been done and so the clinical trials are usually smaller and and less exhaustive. I would say that's probably also a reason why generic drugs are cheaper. Right? Well, because yeah, because a lot of the work to go through as much to get to the stores. Right. Yeah, yeah, they they can be more profitable at a at a lower cost. Yeah. Right, and and they're also cheaper because at that point it's no longer a monopoly. Right. You can't mm-hmm. now they yeah, can undercut economic system. Right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> they can undercut the 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 main uh, um, proprietor of said drug. Well, biosimilars are totally different, right? Because we've just said. A biosimilar drug can be completely structured in a different way than its reference drug. Um, it's supposed to do the same thing pharmacologically, but structurally it could be very different. Because it could be very different, then there's the question of, well, will this have different symptoms? Will it be have a different toxicity level than, say, the reference drug does? It has to undergo much more extensive clinical trials than generics tend to. So that is another reason why uh, the cost difference between a biosimilar drug and the reference drug may not be as great as you would see in generic drugs mm-hmm. uh, because you still have to undergo this incredibly exhaustive testing for good reason. I'm not I'm not suggesting that that's a bad idea. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. But but the but the market is still in play. Uh, you'll still have the effect of um, of of companies attempting to undercut each other's prices. Right. The question is just how far lower can they go right. considering the fact that the um, the investment in biosimilars is, generally speaking, higher than it is to go into the business of designing generic drugs, or not designing, but producing generic drugs. So let's let's talk about this idea of copyrights and patents because it does play directly into uh, generics and biosimilars. It's not all science and technology; it's also economics and intellectual property. Um, so when you start looking at large scale drug manufacturing, you have to go all the way back to the Revolutionary War here in the United States. Uh, that's when uh, uh, Andrew Craigie bega- established a manufacturing facility in Pennsylvania, and he became the first apothecary general of the United States. Apothecary that's a general? good post to have. Yes. Yeah. We don't have one of those anymore, do we? No. no that's an uh, amazing title, though. Yeah, we got, got rid of, uh, got rid of wow. that shortly after the alchemist general. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, so by 1796, inventors were starting to file patents in the United States for medical devices and medicines. Uh, by the mid 1800s, companies began to form around new manufacturing practices, which uh, at the time that was actually more important than the medicines themselves. The the way you manufactured them became much more important than whatever it was you were making. Uh, and the reason for that is that in the United States. 
we were really dependent upon other parts of the world to actually research and develop medicines, then what would happen is those entities, mostly in Europe, would essentially license the medicines into the United States where we could produce them here. Mm -hmm. But it was because somewhere else, that's where that's where they were being developed. So it was like a an interesting uh, thing to look at that that we weren't really developing drugs in the U.S. at that time. We were simply producing them based upon the work people in Europe were doing. So that actually became a bit of a problem because, well, by the end of the 19th century, German manufacturers were holding most of the patents around major medicines in the United States. Um, and in fact, there were subsidiary companies in the U.S., subsidiaries of those German companies that were producing the drugs here in the U.S. and they didn't have the full recipe. Huh. Like it's like you would get a jar with, you know, ingredient X and then you would you would go ahead and do the mixture as and do the rest. Right. But right. you didn't know what was in ingredient X. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of interesting that it was being kept as a sort of a trade secret. So even though it was being produced in the US, people in the US didn't know what was going into it. Uh, but OK, so we're 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 coming out of, of the 1800s going into the 1900s. Yeah. And lots of these companies were from Germany. Yeah. Uh, so you're 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 getting uh, you're you're thinking about to like what happens around oh 1914 to that you know or somewhere around in that range where you know some conflict is happening in Europe they they're entering into uh you know the war to end all wars the Great War yeah except it you know of course it didn't end all wars uh, yeah so Good much job, so that wars. no no one at the time called it World War One because they were all very optimistic oh um so at any rate World War One happens. And because it happens, it ends up creating a problem where the U.S. is not able to access those drugs, those medicines that were coming from Germany anymore. Uh, they, it, the United States was trying to find ways to make certain that it wasn't providing financial support to Germany during World War One. Oh, sure. I'm sure that also some trade routes were a little bit disrupted by by the entire proceeding. Yeah. Uh, so, so there was actually a law passed that that basically let Americans get around this this entire thing. Yeah. There? Yeah. You get to a point where you're like, well, how do we how do we deliver upon medicines? How do we uh do this in this time of, of tribulation? What what are our options? The United States government in nineteen seventeen passes the Trading with the Enemy Act. And that actually allowed companies to produce products that were otherwise protected by patents if those patents were held by individuals or companies in enemy states. No, convenient. So, so right, like right. your intellectual property doesn't count if you are at war <laughs> with the United States. And that's so, such a fascinating uh, precedent. I love that. Yeah, uh, it's it's also the way I live my life. When I get into a spat with somebody, I'm just like, well, their ideas are no longer no relevant, longer theirs. and I can I can take whatever they had. Well, now I what. Hey, so, so does this also mean that if somebody like physically assaults you, you can plagiarize their novel? I mean, <laughs> I mean, could you that's apply how I live the same life. principle at the small scale? It's how oh, I live my life. If 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 that's accurate, then I'm gonna I'm gonna go out go out to some writer events and like uh-huh. just start picking fights with people. Right. So, so like, oh man, what are you gonna do? Punch me? I'm gonna steal your short story. I think you're gonna need to be a little <laughs> more specific with your wording because technically you can do that. Uh-huh. You just can't get away Make with it. Make money. <laughs> <off of it. laughs> like, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, you can't get away with it, but you 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 could physically do that thing. Um, so we get through World War One, uh, and and then we start getting into a new 
thought process in the United States, and this is what allows generic drugs to really become a thing. Back in the 1920s, there's a little company called Bayer, going back to aspirin. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were riding high on the headaches of the world, selling aspirin to whomever was ailing. But you, then you got a lot of, of uh, companies that were producing copycats. They had essentially re- you know, were creating Cracked their own. the code and yeah. were making their own. Yeah. yeah. They're just making their own uh, 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 aspirin, essentially, or asp- generic aspirin. Um, and Bayer ended up going into litigious action, suing lots of different uh, companies and individuals. The courts in the United States, however, decided that Bayer couldn't demand stores to remove generic versions of aspirin to prevent them from being made or prevent them from being made, rather. Uh, so then you get to the Second World War, and that also reinforced this idea that the United States really needed to invest in research and development of its own as far as medicines are concerned. It could no longer depend upon outside sources to develop this medication. So they started to really, uh, we see, see a, a kind of a, a boom in the in pharmacological industry here in the U.S. post World War II. Uh, yeah, yeah, we all realized it was. It's it's a national resource. It's it's important yeah. to be able to be able to fix our our populace. It's sure. it's it was a, <laughs> it was essentially a type of national security, right? Oh, right. Yeah. Just like just like we talk about fuel in terms of national security today, medicine certainly fell into that same category. Um, and you often will hear arguments similar to this today about companies that develop a drug, and of course they they will protect that drug, and for the duration of that protection, they can charge pretty much whatever they like, and there's not really any alternative to it. And you talk about things like, well, that that seems really predatory. Well, it, it, during post World War II era, we were attempting to avoid a global version of that. We still have the corporate version of that, mm-hmm. so. Then you get into the idea of patents. Uh, now, this we brought this up earlier, Joe. You mentioned patent medicine. Patent medicine, That's ironically, kind of a counterintuitive name. Yeah, ironically, it doesn't have a patent. A patent medicine is usually what we call, uh, you know, you had a snake oil salesman yeah. running around with a cart full of bottles of something called, like, you know, un- Uncle. Uh, Uncle Jimmy's cure everything juice. Yeah, and, uh, and I always it was think great of a, for rheumatism, diarrhea, and cancer. Yeah, and yeah. Would, uh, fix it all. And it turns out what's in it is usually like uh, alcohol and some turpentine or something. Right, right. Maybe a couple herbs. It yeah. always it always makes me think of a Doc Terminus from the movie Pete's Dragon, uh, played by Jim Dale, an amazing Disney villain. Anyway, so he's not in the new one. <laughs> Uh, I digress. I I was on a Disney cruise, so my mind is also still with Disney. Um, So, uh, yeah, patent medicine was not patented. And the reason it wasn't patented is that when you file for a patent, you have to explain what your invention is and how it works in general. And the idea being that if you've come up with an idea and uh, you that idea has the potential to benefit mankind as a whole, then by filing for the patent, one, you've protected your idea. You, you are supposed to be granted exclusive rights to that idea for a certain length of time, however long the patent is good for. Mm-hmm. Uh, once that time expires, anyone can use the patent that you have filed as the basis for a, their own work, and they can make their own version of the thing you have invented. Uh, yeah, so so what you get into with, with stuff like patent medicines is the idea that that – 
you don't want anyone else to ever make the stuff that you just made. Or at um, least, or you don't want to have to prove that it works. <laughs> that, that too, yeah, yeah. Well, one of the two, certainly. I, you know, for for example, I believe that the WD forty is still not patented because the makers of it just don't want anyone. To it's like a trade secret. Sure, it's a trade yeah. secret. Yeah. So. People who are the purveyors of patent medicine would claim that their medicines are trade secrets, too. They don't want the secret out because they are the ones who produce this miracle cure and uh, and and they're doing so uh, responsibly and you should buy from them. Uh, me- meanwhile, patented medicines have actually gone through this process of uh, being filed with a patent office and being uh, issued a patent. So patent medicine versus patented medicine, they're opposite of each other, which is hard to get your mind around when you first start reading about these sort of things. Uh, also tells us that right. patent medicine, it's a historical term. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Uh, although, actually, I wonder if, if uh, some of the alternative medicines out there um kind of fall into that same category fall into that yeah the, the uh, yeah new, I would new ima- agey stuff yeah. i would imagine so uh well and a lot of those alternative medicines you know people say well this is not a drug it has a chemical component in it that has a pharmacological effect by definition it's a drug it's just an unregulated drug that that you cannot guarantee that you'll have the same amount of active ingredient from one dose to the next. <laughs> I'd say most... Not, not legally speaking, yeah. but yeah. yeah. Uh, most alternative medicines today probably don't have turpentine in them, so they're uh, less likely to make you violently sick. I do I like you said guess. most and probably. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, But they might not be any more effective. At any rate, uh, you know, this, this whole discussion of patent versus patented illustrates that language is dumb. Uh, also, we can, we should mention that drugs are not just necessarily protected by patents. Patents do expire after a, a given term, mm-hmm. you know, like seven to 12 years, depending upon the place and the type of patent you're talking about. Um, and sometimes some patents, Again, depending on where you are, it could last longer than that. Uh, drugs can also be protected by trademarks. Now, trademarks are not protecting the composition of the drug. It's really protecting the, the brand, the uh, name. Right, the name and perhaps the way that the bottle looks, stuff like that. So, yes, exactly. So, uh, or even the design of the pill. Yeah, right. exactly. So so if, if oh, what was our what was our fancy drug? Scalpinex? Uh, Scal- Scalp- Scalpextra. Scalpextra. Yes. Now that's the that's the patented version. Right. The, uh, well, that oh, would be. Right, right. That would also yeah. be the trademarked version. Yeah. 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 You can't call just any old Q ball hydride hydride uh, Scalpextra. Right. Right. You have to come up with another scalp pun. And you couldn't you couldn't market it in a bottle that looked similar to a Scalpextra bottle because most likely that would or, also be trademarked. Yeah, or too similar. Too similar. Yeah. And trademark is one of those things that uh, you have to defend in order to keep it. Yeah. If you trademark something and you don't defend that trademark, then uh, you can you won't have a whole lot of ground to stand on if you ultimately decide, hey, I've had enough of this. I'm going to go out there and go after these guys. Yeah, I've heard that that's a common explanation for like, oh, why is some company being a jerk going after some small fish who did some you know little tiny trademark infringement? Uh, and I think it's sort of about legal precedent. They're afraid if some rival company sees right. that they haven't pursued trademark uh, infringement rights against the small fish then they have the precedent to take advantage of it at a large scale. Exactly. So, uh, again, once that exclusivity of the the patent expires and other companies are allowed to get into the game and use that same idea to make their own product, that's where you see generic drugs come in in the chemical 
side of things, like the the small molecule type of drugs. Uh, that's when generics can hit the market. Uh, it's also when biosimilars can hit the market. But the big difference here is that when you're talking about a biosimilar drug, uh, the people who make or the companies that make biologic therapies don't have to reveal everything that goes into making that therapy. Lauren, uh, you you mentioned this earlier. Uh, yeah, because because when you uh, right when, when when you patent this kind of thing, you're not necessarily patenting the process. You're patenting the resulting product. Right. Um, you can separately patent the process, maybe sometimes depending on what machinery you've created or, yeah. or stuff like that. But uh, but in general, since you're working with, with living tissue and living systems and and stuff that is unpatentable like DNA, right. uh, it's, it, it falls into that trade secret category. Right. So then that means if you want to create a biosimilar, then what you have to do is kind of work backward. You might know in general what goes into the biologic therapy, but in order to get to that destination, you may have to plot your own course yeah. and thus – you have to go through that big clinical testing because the the approach you take might be dramatically different from the approach the the uh, producer of the reference drug took. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the history of biosimilars. This was interesting to me too because it went back further than I had imagined uh, yeah. when you start talking about biological therapies. So in the U.S., the government got involved with biologically derived products way back in 1902 with the Biologics Control Act. Huh. 1902. Uh, and it actually was – this This shouldn't really be much of a surprise. It was actually a response to a tragedy that had happened in 1901. There was a diphtheria uh, antitoxin serum that was derived from the blood of horses. And unfortunately, one batch of that uh, antitoxin serum caused the deaths of 13 children – when there was an investigation to find out what caused this, uh, it went back to a St. Louis manufacturing company that had used the blood of a horse that had been infected with tetanus. Oh, oh. So the uh. act was created specifically to put protections in place to prevent that sort of thing from happening again in the future. Sure. Now, with the, a lot of these biologic therapies, uh, a lot of them are, are relatively young. I mean, they don't all date back to 1902, right? right? So... Uh, some of them are just getting to the age where those patents that were filed back when they were first developed are expiring soon. That is another reason why this discussion of biosimilars has kind of popped up in the media because we're now getting to a point where that protection expires and other companies can actually legally create their biosimilars to uh, the biologic therapies. Uh, yeah, and, and recently it's happened with a couple of drugs, I believe for, for rheumatism, for, for rheumatoid arthritis. Right. So. And... and this is still so new that we don't have a really well thought out policy that that is specifically intended to uh, regulate this sort of stuff. In the United States, biosimilars currently fall under the regulation of the FDA's Public Health Service Act. But there are motions to create a formalized approach to the testing and approval to biosimilars. Uh, so right now, the way F the FDA treats this – makes sense if you were listening earlier to the podcast they treat it like every biosimilar is actually an entirely new biologic therapy yeah right so it's just the same as if you had come up with a brand new process to treat a specific illness or set of symptoms and so uh, a lot of people are thinking well there's got to be a, a better way of doing this and that in turn will 
one, uh, encourage more companies to develop biosimilars, and two, help bring that cost of the 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 final therapies down. Because if you're able to streamline this approach, uh, the investment on the end of the companies won't be as great. Oh, sure. Uh, and I did want to also put in that not all biologic therapies fall under the regulations for 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 this biosimilar drug kind of thing like a like if if you've if if you've ever taken insulin or birth control pills then you know that those are regulated the same way that that chemical drugs right. are here here in the United States at any rate and so so generics of those can be made and called generics even though they're technically a biologic therapy uh, and it's for a number of of honestly exhausting legal reasons uh, that that those have been categorized that way but yeah right so glancing ahead in the future it looks like biosimilars are going to play an increasingly important role in medicine. It may, however, not lead to some sort of uh, glorious renaissance of cheap therapies, right? We may see less expensive therapies. Uh, in fact, if we don't see less expensive therapies, there are going to be some companies that are out of some serious money. Because the only reason to get into the game is if you can produce a... Uh, a a therapy that is effective for the treatment of a particular condition or illness or whatever at a lower uh, selling cost than the the leading brand of that therapy otherwise you're not you're not going to sell anything you're not going to you don't have a you don't have something to entice people to buy your approach versus the name brand right, approach right right yeah so they will be cheaper. The question is, will they be significantly cheaper? And they may not be. Now, there are some people who are skeptical that it will be a significant drop in price. So then we also have other complications such as how are they going to be affected through uh, things like insurance? Like how will, how is insurance going to um, cover a biosimilar versus the reference biologic therapy? And we don't have the answers to this yet. These are still – Questions that have to be solved. And, and keep in mind that we're talking about a realm of science that is still relatively young and is outpacing uh, legal and insurance realms. So it's going to be messy for a while. And it may not shake out for several years uh, until we've reached a point where we have a better understanding on from all perspectives. Uh, yeah, yeah. If, if you're asking about the direct future of biosimilars, I would say that it's Something of a regulation headache at yeah. this current moment. Uh, I mean, you know, par- partially for for the reasons of protecting um, the these companies' interests, but also for the reasons of protecting doctors and patients as they come to understand how the products work and and comprehend the potential risks in using them versus a uh, a previous therapy that they have used. Right. So ultimately, I think what we're going to see is that these therapies. And similar therapies, you know, these biologic therapies, whether it's the reference one or the uh, the various biosimilars out there, they're going to become more accessible. And at least in theory, they will become less expensive. Both of those are good things. Yeah. Uh, it's just one of those deals where we really felt that a lot of that coverage out there was treating this so so much on a surface level that it's hard to understand why – it's complicated until you start really diving into it and you realize, oh, it's complicated because, one, you're talking about biology, mm. which is not necessarily sim- simple. I mean, uh, you know, every time you work with a cell, you're not guaranteed to have specifically the an identical experience 
like you would with using the exact same chemicals in a pristine laboratory setting. Uh, yeah, sure. And, and although the ingredients in, in many biosimilar drugs, the, the proteins, the sugars, the uh, DNA bits, uh, mm. any of that stuff is hypothetically a chemical and hypothetically can be reproduced uh, consistently. Right. You don't. Again, because you throw in that that you're doing stuff with living stuff factor. Yeah, living stuff can have a uh, slight differentiation from from uh, instance to instant. Yes. So that ends up being a bit of a, a complication. But then on top of that, you've got the complication of that we're people and we have to figure out how to handle this new, uh, relatively new discipline, and uh, and so that's why it's so complicated. Partially because we made it that way. Yeah. But uh, this was really interesting to look into. I really learned a lot as I started to research this stuff that you know I thought I knew, and then as I was reading, I'm like, wow, I had a complete, uh, I had the wrong perspective on this. You know, this topic makes me think that in the future we should maybe do an episode entirely devoted to the future of medical research incentives, mm. uh, because the whole the, the thinking behind the patent system, as you said earlier, you know, part of it is about in the long term sharing information, but it's also about providing incentive for mm -hmm. research, right? It's saying that uh, uh, it's sort of giving you a guarantee that if you forge a path that is a productive path, you will reap rewards from it and other people can't scoop your rewards away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I, I wonder... I wonder if the, there are interesting uh, trains of thought about what types of incentives for research will continue into the future. I mean, will you always have to have the same kind of promise from the market to make people invest the time and money into life-saving research? Yeah. Mm. Well, and we could also have an interesting discussion about uh, Salk and the uh, polio vaccine mm -hmm. because there's the, the infamous exchange where – uh, he, he developed the polio vaccine and he was asked, uh, uh, who holds the patent on it? And he says, well, I, I suppose the people hold the patent on it. I mean, would you patent the sun? Mm -hmm. And so there are people who champion him as saying that this was a person who developed a, uh, uh, an approach to stave off a devastating disease for the good of all humans. As, as a public service. Right. Yeah. Like an altruistic act. And uh, the truth of the matter gets a little more muddy and complicated, but that would be a great yeah. side discussion for that particular episode, I would mm -hmm. say. So keep an ear out for that in the future. Uh, meanwhile, uh, make sure that you go and check out the videos we've been doing for Forward Thinking this season. I think that they're some of the strongest ones we've produced so far. And uh, if you have any suggestions for future episodes or you have a question about something we've talked about in the past, send it our way. The email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop us a line on Twitter. We're fwthinking there. Or search fwthinking in Facebook. Our profile will pop up. You can leave us a message. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.